Well, uh, today we're um, commencing a, a new series and we've called this series Seven, which refers to the seven churches in the first century in Asia Minor in modern day Turkey. And they were recipients of a circular letter and this circular letter is included in our New Testament and it is the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. Uh, traditionally, this um, letter, this book, was thought to be John. Well, John wrote, um, wrote it, yes, but he was thought to be the disciple of Jesus, the one who wrote John's Gospel, and also the letters of John in the New Testament. And John calls this the revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells us straight up what this book is right at the start of his um, of, of the words of Revelation and what is being reve revealed, who is being revealed. Well Jesus in this book is being revealed as the king of the world and he's being revealed as the ruler of all things. But also this is a revelation given by Jesus to John for him to pass on to these seven churches in Asia Minor. Now the word revelation in the Greek language of the New Testament is apocalypsis, from, we which, get, from which we get our English word apocalypse. Now these days the word apocalypse means uh, uh, death and destruction and devastation and catastrophe. Certainly those are some of the synonyms of that. Uh, an example would be the 1979 film with Marlon Brando and um, uh, Michael Sheen, wasn't it? Uh, yes. And um, Apocalypse Now, full of uh, destruction and catastrophe. But this word apocalypsis, which speaks of revelation, actually means unveiling or disclosure. The veil is being taken off. The mystery is being unlocked. The mystery is being revealed. Although I'm sure most of us who have attempted to read Revelation might disagree with that veil being taken off. When I uh, first came to this church um, in the early 90s, I was uh, at the time running a, a morning, Thursday morning Bible study and um, some interesting conversations. And we were getting to the end of one of our series and I made the foolish mistake and asked the group, what would you like to study next? And I remember, as if it were yesterday, um, Debbie Corrigan, uh, Richard and Tom's mum, said, let's do Revelation. Well, I tried to be professional. <laughs> I didn't want to weep openly before these sincere ladies of the faith. But I tell you, my, my heart sank. It really did. Um, and we worked our way as faithfully as we could through that. But I don't think there was a huge amount of unveiling going on there or unlocking mysteries to that group. Of course, that might have been because of my own uh, deficiencies. Well, in Revelation, we are projected into another world. It's a world unlike anything else that we see in the New Testament. There's so much bizarre imagery once you read this book. It's full of angels and trumpets and earthquakes and, and dragons and beasts. And it's very difficult on times to know what to make of it. Sometimes uh, John speaks very plainly and other times there is this diverse symbolism. Sometimes the symbolism is understandable but other times it's extremely obscure. And he seems to have a thing about seven, the number seven. On 52 occasions in Revelation he uses seven. 
There were seven beatitudes, seven churches, seven stars, seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, and so on and so forth. And I would say to anybody who's attempting to read this book, read it humbly. One despairing Bible scholar said that there are as many riddles in Revelation as there are words. The great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, didn't even believe that Revelation should be included in the Scripture. He said of, of Revelation that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not perceptible in it. And he wasn't the only one. There were others like Uldrich Zwingli, uh, great reformers who said much the same. But again, we need to remember that Martin Luther didn't think that James, Jude, Second Peter or Hebrew should be in either. <laughs> when I was in my early 20s, I, uh, I was doing a vocational uh, course and I remember purchasing some of those uh, Made Easy books. Do you remember those Made Easy books? Black and Orange. I've, got, I've still got a couple on my bookshelf. Uh, British Constitution Made Easy. Economics Made Easy. Well, if you ever come across one, uh, Revelation Made Easy. And actually, as I was scouring the internet this week, I did. Not the same series, obviously. Don't buy it. <laughs> Absolutely do not buy it. Because when I saw that, I laughed very loudly. You know, it's, it, it would be an utter waste of money because even the, the greatest Bible scholars tend to fall into four very different groups. First of all, there are those who believe that Revelation is about the events of the first century. And since most of those, well, all of those events have now taken place, well, what's Revelation got to say to us? That is called the preterist view. Others believe that Revelation describes events from the first century all through the ages right up to our present day and will speak about events going up to the end times. That's called the historicist view or the historical view. The third view is those who believe that the book is primarily about the end times, which is the futurist view. Now, I know that some very sincere Christians believe this view, but the futurist view is often favoured by religious eccentrics. Uh, people who use this book to try to work out or map the, the end of the world. Uh, people like David Koresh, remember him? Uh, of the Branch Davidian sect from Waco, Texas. Well, he was a Waco as well, but there we go. That's another, that's another matter altogether. But his fanaticism caused uh, such devastation there in 1993. Incidentally, his compound was called um, Ranch Apocalypse. And then, oh sorry, and then fourthly, there are some who believe that Revelation presents timeless truths, which is the idealist view. Um, what do I believe? Does it really matter what I believe? Because it may be that you might have other views anyway. I think I would probably settle. It was largely about first century uh, and, and was fulfilled largely in the first century. But I think that it also contains timeless truths for Christians of all generations. Otherwise, we wouldn't be studying it today, would we? If you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. You don't need to tell me you're disagreeing with me. I don't need to know. Life is too short. Keep it to yourselves, please, okay? You know, don't sort of collar me at the door afterwards and say, Steve, I didn't agree with it. Bless you. <laughs> Get a life. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. What I'm doing now, sorry, we've not even started yet, okay? 
we've not even started because we're just doing a, a general introduction. So what, what's this book all about? Well, Revelation is a very special type of Jewish literature called apocalyptic uh, literature, which is very familiar to the uh, Jews and also the Christians. And it was around in the years from around about uh, 200 BC through, through to 200 AD. And the earliest Christians were entering a time of persecution uh, by the Roman authorities. And many of them were being enforced to uh, emperor worship because um, many of them were being made to bow the knee to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. But there were many of them who could not say Caesar is Lord because they had another Lord, and that Lord was Jesus Christ. And they were the ones in danger of losing their lives. And it was a terribly frightening time. Imagine just being alive at that time with this going on. And it seemed as if the church and the state were in a collision course. And John, John warns the church that things are going to get worse before they get better. But he's encouraging the people through this, this book to hold fast, to persevere, because ultimately theirs is the victory. Many of them were going to suffer death, but they were not to forget that God is the one in control of the world, that he is the one who has and holds the keys of history. And that essentially is what the book of Revelation is all about. That Christ holds the churches in his hands. That history is his story. Many of them would be killed by Caesar, but they would ultimately triumph and God would triumph and God would pour out his wrath against all those who caused suffering and death. Anyway, just a little insight. I'm not going to do this every week, by the way, okay? I just want to give you some kind of understanding of into the, the, which territory we are going here over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just pray that you will enable us to hear your voice in our scripture passage this morning, we pray. Help us discern words written 2,000 years ago in a very, very different context and for, them, for us to understand what they're saying to us today, we pray. Amen. Amen. Although Revelation is a book which is full of imagery and full of symbolism, we know that the churches that this book was directed to were actual churches, historical churches in the first century. And um, I'll put a map here. What we've got, you, you, you've got the Mediterranean, this area here of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and there, as you can see, you've got Greece. And the seven churches were actual churches uh, in Asia Minor. We are starting this morning on Ephesus, and then working clockwise, because this is also the order that they're found in, in uh, Revelation, Smyrna, Pergamos, is also called Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I believe that they've all got a word to speak into our lives and into the 21st century. So let's um, read this passage uh, together. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 this morning. Uh, if you've not got a Bible, I'll, I'll put words up on screen, but I do encourage you, please bring your Bibles on a Sunday morning. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, who, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So you can see it. there's a lot of symbolism in that, and we'll try and work our way through this today, because the message behind this is such an important message, I believe, for every person in this room today. As I mentioned a few moments ago, Bible scholars, or some Bible scholars at least, see these churches as representative churches throughout history. And therefore they say that the first church, the Ephesian church, is the church of the first century, the apostolic church. And then the second church, Smyrna, is a church of the years 100 to 300 AD. It was the church that experienced persecution. The third church, uh, Pergamum or Pergamos, is the church that um, became the, church, uh, the, the state church joined to Rome. And working all the way through to the last church, which is Laodicea, which was the lukewarm church, which is thought to be the church of today. I'm not so sure that's right. Um, there are other views, and I think I'd probably fit, put myself in this second group. And that is that the churches recorded for us in Revelation are characteristic of churches in every generation. And therefore, we've got each of these churches in each generation. So whether it's in the first century or in the 21st century, you've got churches which are good churches and churches which are bad churches. Churches which have embraced false doctrine. Others which are sound as a pound. You've got some who have experienced persecution, and we can see that in our world today. Others who are not living in persecution. Some churches who are so fervent for their, their faith in Jesus and others who are lukewarm. So by studying these seven churches, we're not just taking some kind of history lesson this morning, but we're trying to understand what defines a good church. What defines a good church? Now, I'm sure that we've all got different views on what defines a good church. And for some of you here this morning, you may say, well, a good church is where there's good, sound Bible teaching. For others, it's where the worship is inspirational. For others still, it may be the warmth of welcome. For others, it may be ample car park spaces. For others, it may be percolated coffee and donuts before a service. Hey, we're working on that one. And still for others, it may be smoke machines and technical gadgetry. It's not important, really, what we think is a good church. What does the Lord think a good church looks like? What are the things highest on the Lord's agenda? I'm sure you'd agree with me, it's important, isn't it, to align our views with what the Lord thinks of his church. After all, it's his church. 
of the seven churches that we read and we're going to study over a number of weeks, which of those churches are we most like? If the risen Lord Jesus was writing to Tamworth Elim Church leaders today, wonder what he would write. Would there be more things to commend us or would there be more things to criticise? He's the one who sees and knows everything. It's also interesting to note that um, these letters, when they were sent out, they were not sent one letter for each church. And therefore, the church at Ephesus would only get what was good and bad in their church. But all of the churches were included in, to, to all of them. Can you imagine that? How embarrassing would that be? Imagine the Lord writing to churches in Tamworth to our friends at St. George's and the Baptist Church and Colton Green and the Methodists and all the others. And we would get to find out, all of us, in all the churches, what was good and bad in each of the churches. Well, it wouldn't embarrass me too much reading about the faults of others. But I'd be pretty hot under the collar if they knew of our faults. And what we are getting here in our studies is a general pattern in each of these letters, we have com commendation from Jesus, we have complaint, and we have correction. And only of the, 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 of the seven churches, two had no complaint against them. And that was the church at Smyrna, which we'll look at next week, and the church at Philadelphia. And two had no commendation, which was Sardis and Laodicea. Okay. What do we know about this church in Ephesus from the Bible. What do we know from the Bible? There's an awful lot we know from the Bible, actually. And what do we know from church history? Well, this great city of Ephesus in the first century was a seaport. And all the trade from the east was shipped to the west from Ephesus. It could be compared a little bit to, like, Liverpool today. Yet, if you were to go to Ephesus today, and I know some of you have gone there on holidays um, if you went there today, it's no longer a thriving harbour and seaport. It's actually five miles inland because of the silting process over the last 2,000 years. In Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. The great um, temple of Artemis, or also known as Diana of the Ephesians. And Diana or Artemis, um, Artemis was the Greek name and Diana was the Roman name. She was known as the goddess of fertility. And um, this multi-breasted um, uh, figure just stood and was uh, one of the seven wonders of, of the world. Now in this city, can you imagine living there with people coming from all parts of the then world? And the worship of Diana kept a lot of people in business in Ephesus. And people would travel far and wide to see this image. And when they were in the city of Ephesus, they were encouraged to part with their money. To buy images and shrines and knickknacks and um, trinkets. Sounds a little bit like Blackpool on bank holiday, doesn't it, you know? Morally as well, this city was a very corrupt city. There was one ancient philosopher that said that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. And yet in this corrupt city stood a church. And this church was like a, an island of purity in a sea of sin. What do we know about the church? 
Well, we know that this church was started by Paul the Apostle. And um, if you read, and we haven't got time to do this this morning, when you go home, I encourage you to do this, read Acts chapter 19, and you will find out about this church and how it got started. And Paul went to Ephesus, he started preaching in a synagogue and afterwards in a, in a, a lecture theatre. And there were different reactions to Paul's ministry, much in the way that there are different reactions to people today when they're preaching the gospel. Some were cynical and they rebelled against him, walked the other way. Some people entrusted their life to Jesus and became followers of his. And also there were some incredible experiences that they had in that church. That um, there were handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul and were taken out to the sick. And they were healed. And some demons, uh, evil spirits, left people as well. This was a church that had some pretty good pastors in the early day. I tell you what, it's, uh, you would like pastors like this rather than the ones that you've got, I think. You know, they had, they had Paul, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, John, Timothy was also there. And when you read 1 and 2 Timothy in the New Testament, that's what Paul is doing. He is writing to Timothy, who is this young pastor in this city of Ephesus. Right, a little bit of background. Let's just jump in now to the the text that we're looking at this morning. The risen Jesus told Apostle John to write, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What on earth does that mean? What or who are the seven stars? And for that matter, the seven golden lampstands. Who do they represent? If you've got your Bibles there, look back one verse from uh, into the last verse of uh, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 20, and we're told the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands of the seven churches. Okay, stay with me for a minute. This becomes easier. The seven stars, the seven stars are the angels of the churches. So who are the angels? What's that all about? Now, some people believe that each church has a guardian angel. It's a nice thought, isn't it? I'm not so sure about that, but it's a nice thought if it's correct. I would prefer to understand um, when uh, John writes to the seven uh, angels, the, the Greek word for angel, angelos or angelos, also means messenger or sent one. And that can refer to the human leader of each church who received the letter that was sent and read it to the church. Now, if that's true, if these letters were directed to the human leaders of the church... I think there's something quite wonderful here because we are told that the risen Lord Jesus holds the leaders of the seven churches in his hands. I think that's wonderful. As I look at myself, I know my own frailties and I find it so incredibly reassuring that I'm not on my own, that the risen Christ, the ruler of the world, holds the leaders in his hands, that he is the one whose church ultimately it is, not ours. 
He is the one who is the all-powerful and the ultimate and overall leader. And we are told that he, Christ, walks among the seven golden lampstands. And I think that that's both a, a comforting and sobering thought. As we are worshipping this morning, Jesus is here. You know, we often declare that truth, don't we, in our prayers. In the songs that we sing about Jesus being here. But we are truly met in the presence of Jesus, the King of Kings. The one who sees all, the one who knows all. He sees our hearts. He can see beneath that mask that we sometimes wear when we're in church, perhaps. He can see the motive behind the deed. He can see how real our worship is. We might be there lost in wonder, love and praise, so it appears. And yet, he sees. He sees all. Nothing's hidden from him. And as this risen Christ, as the risen Christ walked through the Ephesian church, we see that they were commended for some things. Jesus complained about other things, but also he told them how to put things right. And I think that this is really where it gets personal to us today. I'm giving you a lot of background stuff this morning so that you can be helped to get into the scriptures yourself and understand some of this stuff. But now is really where it becomes a little bit more devotional. And <clears throat> Jesus tells John to write, verse 2, he commends them on, first of all, their enthusiasm. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Now, this was a, a church which was hardworking. It was a laboring church. It was a church that probably had a magnificent church program. In this church in Ephesus, I imagine that the person giving the notices on a Sunday morning was standing as long as the person giving the preaching. They would tell probably of prayer meetings and Bible studies and beginners classes and life groups and evangelism and Ephesus High Street and choir practice and ladies meetings and men's fellowships and Sunday school and youth work and youth clubs and mums and tots and barbecue evangelism and, and probably lots more. There is no way that this church could be classed as a lazy church. They were not afraid of getting their hands dirty. And Jesus sees that, the all-knowing Christ sees that, and he commends them for it, their hard work, their enthusiasm. The next thing that he commends them for is their endurance. In verse 3, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now again, don't forget what kind of city this city of Ephesus was. Um, the worship of Diana was really important to the Ephesians. And the whole economy of this city revolved around the worship of this goddess. So, when a person became a Christian in this city, do you think it was easy or difficult for them? Yeah, you bet it was. It was incredibly difficult. Because when they became a follower of Jesus... they would not be able to partake in all of this. And perhaps if their business depended on this, then they would lose out financially. We, if you read in Acts chapter 19, we read of a silversmith called Demetrius. And he caused a riot in the city of Ephesus. Why? Because people were not buying his trinkets and charms any longer. Because so many of them had become Christians. 
it must have been really, really difficult to eke out a living if you're a Christian in this city. In our country, it's quite easy, really, isn't it? You know, the most that we ever get is a little bit of ridicule now and again. I remember when I became a Christian a long time ago now, some of my football mates said, oh, Steve's got religion. You know, so give him some space. He'll come to his senses in a few weeks' time. You know, very, very condescending. You know, a bit of a flash in the pan. That's all that is. Okay, it was a little bit tough to take at the time because we all like to be popular. You don't like people taking the mick. But for my friend, my friend Terry, uh, it was potentially more costly for him to follow Jesus because he ran the risk of his Muslim father throwing him out and disowning him. Thankfully, it didn't happen. But he didn't know it wasn't going to happen. And for the Ephesians, it was really a costly thing to become a Christian. Someone once said that Western Christianity is drenched in sentiment and devoid of sacrifice. I wonder if they're true. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that now. You can enjoy that one in your life groups this week. What else do we know about this church? What other way does the risen Christ commend them? Well, for their enthusiasm, for their endurance, but also for their enlightenment. In verse 2 there, I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, but you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them to be false. The Ephesians could not tolerate wicked men. They were enlightened. Now, I think that um, toleration has become the defining virtue of our generation. To be seen as intolerant is the worst possible sin in our society. The problem is, and it is a problem, is that being tolerant has actually changed its meaning over the years. It used to mean, I may disagree with you completely, but I am going to treat you with respect. I may disagree with you, but I'm going to treat you with respect. That's what it used to mean. Today, it tends to mean, more often than not, that you must approve of everything that I do. There's a difference between tolerance and approval. You can be accepting without being approving. It was Rick Warren, pastor of the Saddleback Church, who once said this. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that you love, to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Coming back to this church, doctrinally it knew its stuff. Its I's were dotted and its T's were crossed. It was a sound church. It was an uncompromising church in Ephesus. If they had Christian magazines in those days, this church would have been on the front page of Christian magazines all the time. You know, their pastor probably would have been invited to all sorts of conferences, ticked all the boxes, doctrinal purity, enthusiasm, willingness to suffer persecution, no skeletons in the, in the cupboard. Yet, the risen Christ with his X-ray, X-ray vision saw something that was wrong. He had a complaint. 
and the complaint, as you can find there in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Just as this church was going to applaud itself and pat itself on the back, Jesus kicked the crutch away. Excuse the mixed metaphors there. But the risen Lord was certainly not happy with things. You see, the one thing that he desired from this church at Ephesus before anything else was the one thing that was missing. And that was their love for him. This church at Ephesus had substituted activity and orthodoxy for worship and for love. And Jesus comes to this Ephesian church not as a VAT man desiring to see the financial returns. He doesn't come as the, the chairman of the board looking for statistical data. But Jesus comes to this church as he comes to all churches, as he comes to our church today, as a lover. With them, it was a disappointed lover. Their love grew cold. Martha that we read about in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, that we find ourselves sometimes in Martha, that we can be so busy working for Christ that we have no time to love him. And Christ really is more concerned with what we do with him than what we do for him. Having said that, when our hearts are full of love for him and when we are walking with him, that love will overflow from our lives and we will serve him well. The words there, love that you had at first, I believe that uh, this is referring to the devotion to Christ, which so often characterizes uh, a new Christian. How would you describe the love that you had when you first trusted Jesus? Go on, throw some words at me. You can do when you first trusted Jesus? Everything. everything. Wow, that covers everything. <laughs> everything. Jesus was everything to you. Any other words you want to throw at me? Passionate. Passionate. Yes. Anything else? Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Yes. Anything else? Life-changing. Life-changing. Thank you. Comforting. Comforting. Like being in love. Okay, we could, we, we, we could go on with this one. You know, I was thinking about a couple of others, uninhibited, openly displayed as well. Let's question ourselves. Has that first love diminished in some way? Obviously, I can't answer for you. You can't answer for me. But it's a question that we need, certainly, to ask ourselves. Francis Schaeffer once wrote, The Christian who acts for doctrinal faithfulness and does not show love to the divine bridegroom is like the wife who does not sleep with anyone else but never shows love to her husband. That would be no basis for a marriage, would it? And yet, this precisely was the state of the Ephesian church. They were passionate about the work for Jesus, but sadly lacking in the most important thing of all, their love for Jesus. Can you imagine the Lord writing a similar letter to us in Tamworth Elim Church? 
Tamworth Elim Church, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, what you do for the community of Glasgow. I know the nurseries that you run and mums and tots and your meals for the elderly and your work in schools. I know that you have a heart for the poorest and the disenfranchised. I know you embrace the, fo the, the foreigner and you support the unlovely. I know how hard you work. I know that you have persevered with grit and determination over the years. You have not grown weary. Yet this one thing I have against you. You have forgotten your first love. Can you imagine the impact of receiving those words from Christ? And therefore we need to be on our guard. We need collectively and we need individually to make our worship of Jesus a priority. To love him. To spend time with him. Because if we don't keep Christ first, it will result in dry religious formalism. But Jesus has something else to say to this church. He has given them their commendations. He has given the complaint. But now he speaks of a correction. Consider how far you have fallen. In some versions of the Bible, it says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Question for all of us. Do we, do I, still have that enjoyment, that excitement, that enthusiasm that I had when I first trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord? In those days, there was a joy in coming to his presence. Is there that joy in our lives today? In those days, I would go to great lengths in order to serve him. Is that still my heart's desire? Everything else, as James was saying, everything, everything paled into insignificance. What about now? What about today? Maybe perhaps over the years, you can look at yourself and uh, you'd say, well, your enthusiasm is tempered and uh, maybe your love, maybe there's a hardness and a brashness and... Uh, an over-familiarity, perhaps, with the things. Your Christian life has become stale. And it's so easy, isn't it, you know, to point the finger at others and to say it's, it, it's because of this or that reason or this excuse. But all we really, really know is that we have lost that simple, childlike faith that we once had. Theologically, we might be well-informed, but that spontaneity and that sparkle has gone from our lives. Our worship, perhaps, is more of a duty, even a drudgery, than it is a delight. As a young Christian, personally, I had lots of enthusiasm, not, a, not much knowledge. And some of you have read uh, a book that Julie and I have written recently, Grace and Glory, and I've put in there some of the stories of when I was younger as a new Christian. My word, I was a bomb pot. I was absolutely... Hugely enthusiastic, but nuts. <laughs> Some of you are saying, what's changed? <laughs> I really blush with embarrassment uh, over, over some of the things that I did back then. And I had enthusiasm without knowledge, but today I'm asking myself, do I have knowledge without that enthusiasm? Maybe you can ask yourself that same question. And the reason Christ says to this church, remember, consider how far you've fallen, remember the heights from which you have fallen. He then says to them, repent. 
The word repent doesn't just mean to say sorry. It means being sorry enough to go that way again. It means far more than remorse. It means a U-turn. It means taking a hold of personal responsibility for our sin. Taking a personal responsibility for where we find ourselves today. So easy, isn't it, you know, to either be, you know, sort of play the pity card or play the blame card. And it's always someone else's. And we try to justify our actions or... No. Let's, let, let's, let's be grown up about this. Let's, let's take this on ourselves. Own up, personal responsibility. And then Jesus says, repeat. Do the things you did at first. Now, many marriage counselors tell married couples who are having difficulties to go back to the place where they spent their honeymoon, if they can. And if that's not possible, then try to rewalk the good times in their marriage. And that might be a message for some of us here this morning, spiritually, that we need to remember, need to repent and repeat. And God's promise to us all is, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Now, this church at Ephesus was a wonderful church in the first century. But the Lord said to them that if they did not repent, he would remove their lampstand, meaning that he would judge them, that he would remove their witness from the city of Ephesus. And sadly, that was the case from the third century onwards. There's not been any Christian witness in the city of Ephesus. And if a church loses its love, it will soon lose its light. And then in verse 7, and we'll just finish with this in a moment, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Now, the first book of the Bible, um, the first couple, Adam and Eve, were expelled from the Garden of Eden. They were barred from eating anything from the tree of life representing God's presence. And here Jesus is giving them an invitation to return to the tree of life, to draw near to him again. Wonderful imagery going on there. And all I want to say is that is an invitation, a wonderful, gracious invitation that Jesus is giving to each one of us here today. Worship band, please come back. And we will sing a, a song, an old song in a moment. Um, when the music fades. And there's a, there's a line in this song which says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. This morning, it may be that uh, as we've studied this together, you might have felt challenged, yes. You might have felt comforted. I certainly feel comforted. Because not only does the Lord see everything, he is offering us an opportunity to come back to him. Maybe that we let things slip. There may have been hard years. There may have been good reasons for that. But we know that our heart is hard compared to what it once was. And there's that wonderful opportunity that he is coming to us with open arms. And as we assess our own lives, it may be that we look back and say, yes, Jesus was everything. He was the love of our lives. He was at the center of all things, that he brought joy and peace and passion 
And he was everything to us, but somehow, somehow, you can't remember the day that it happened, but somehow you're in a very, very different place today. Remember is the first thing that we need to do. Remember those days. What were they like? Secondly, repent. Turn around. Do a U-turn. Wherever you're at today, that is God's word to you. Turn around. It hasn't got to continue to be like this. And thirdly, repeat. Do the things that you once did. And I just want to give you an opportunity this morning to apply this very, very important truth to your lives. And I'm sure that um, these words will apply in very, very different ways to different people in this place. And uh, I'm, I'm very aware of that today. And as we sing together, if you would like prayer, a number of our prayer ministry team are going to be around. For those who are visiting, they're the ones essentially with their um, ministry badges, prayer ministry badges. They would love to be able to pray with you. Maybe that you sat with someone that you know and trust and who is a good Christian friend and you would like that person to pray. Just, just ask them. Or if, if you've got no one else, you know, please come. Dan, myself, a few of the other leaders are around the front. We would love to pray. But don't let this opportunity pass by. Because I know that I know that I know that some of you have been saying, even this week, where is that joy in my Christian life gone? And he is saying, here's a way back. Please would you stand?